Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning, friends. Welcome back. Good morning to everyone watching us on live stream this morning. I trust that you had wonderfully rich discussions with your groups this morning, um, like I did with mine. Um, I just want to say quickly before we get started this morning, thank you so much for your participation in our Foster Love um, snack bag project. We delivered 200 bags to Foster Love, and then you guys donated so much extra stuff that I, I believe that they're going to have enough snacks for an entire year at the Foster Love house. And that's where, where children come and stay um, when they're waiting for placement. Um, their case managers will bring them. They might spend a night or two, and they need lots of snacks. So what we made were for the, for the caseworkers, but what, we, what God multiplied in, in exceeding abundance was enough for all of the children as well. So thank you. That was amazing. And I'm, I'm really proud of, of us all together, how we gave a little and God magnified it, like we're going to learn today. Um, we have two projects for the month of March I want to bring to your attention. One is for Embrace Grace. You know that that is the group um, that meets uh, for a 10-week uh, Bible study, women who are experiencing an unplanned pregnancy. We have three amazing young girls in our program this year, and it's just been a great blessing. March 28th, they have something called Special Day, which is a day of pampering. They get a makeover, a photo shoot, and we have a meal for them, and it's really fun. And so uh, we are asking for HEB gift cards in any amount that you would like to bring um, over the next few weeks to help provide the food for that meal. So I really, they need to be HEB gift cards. That's the easiest way for us to, to go and buy at one place. And really, $2, $3, $5, every little bit counts. I would rather have a whole bunch of little ones than one giant one. Uh, so that is one opportunity. Uh, the second is we're going to start um, a project for Discipleship Unlimited. And as I'm talking about it, Linda's walking down the aisle. Linda's the president of Discipleship Unlimited, an amazing organization that ministers to um, prisons all around the state, but primarily in Gatesville and Marlin. And um, there is going to be a new CR program at one of the, one of the faith-based dorms, or maybe two, one. Oh, okay, for the Strive Reentry Program. <clears throat> they are having, um, they have a need for Celebrate Recovery, and they need books for Celebrate Recovery. Those books cost $5 each. We are going to have a goal of trying to, as a group, um, provide 64 books. That's $320. So at, on that table in the back, I have a little envelope. It's, it's designated for Discipleship Unlimited. If you'd like to drop in a donation today or any time over the next month, you don't have to do it today. Checks need to be made to Discipleship Unlimited, not to TBC. One more time, checks are to Discipleship Unlimited, not to TBC, and you can drop those in that envelope. We'll be talking about this the whole month of March. Um, one last announcement, we will not meet the, the week of spring break. That's March 15th to 19th. So for us, that's the 18th. We will not meet here. So you can come up here, but nobody will be here to talk to you. <laughs> all right, I think that is, that's all the announcements. Let's go ahead and stand. We're gonna, we have a new memory verse this week. Let's stand and read this or recite it together, and we'll get started. When he went ashore, 
he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. All right, stay standing. I'm going to invite Julie up. We are so privileged to have Julie Mahler back with us today. You weren't, she wasn't here with you in the room. She had to do this to an empty room last time. <laughs> she she kind of liked that. <laughs> but I am so excited for, for us to be together and for you to hear from Julie what God has put on her heart. So would you join me in prayer for Julie? Father, we just praise your name together. We just thank you for what you have done in us and around us and through us this week. How you have just made your word alive in our personal study, through our discussion groups and Two, and especially to my friend Julie, as you've taught her and, and helped her to prepare this for us. So God, we're expecting to hear from you, not from Julie. She's just your servant. And so would you help her? Because I know she feels nerves. We always do in this position. Would you just give us, um, just be able to, to send her love and affirmation from where we sit as we listen. But God, we're expecting to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And we want to, to see something new. We want you to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to something, something that you have for us. And I expect that all of us could get something different from you. And it's amazing. So we just praise you. And we look forward to what you will teach us. We thank you in advance for what you will do. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, well, it's great to be with all of you again today. You can go ahead and put that first slide up. There's not a lot on the internet regarding the um, disciples, but I really liked this one. I love this meme because today's lesson is hyper-disciple-focused. These guys move from being constant companions of Jesus to actually doing the ministry alongside them and being sent out by him. We also see where he purposefully places them in situations that are hard. But make no mistake, Jesus is intentional in this doing and uses it for their continued growth and dependence on him while they learn to live sacrificially as his disciples. Discipleship, as we see, is hard work. It's costly. But in chapter 6, we are also learning more and more about the character of our Savior and who he promises to be for us in our greatest times of need. So we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 6 in the hometown, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth is very small at this time, about 500 people, really, really small. And basically, everybody knew everybody. Now, if you're a big city person, you don't understand that. But if you're from a small town, like really small, you get it. Jesus' family would have been known, and Jesus growing up there would have been known. And so in this account, we find Jesus in the synagogue rising to teach with a zeal, the same zeal that teachers today have when they talk about how every scripture in the Old Testament points to Christ. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing. The Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in him. But his friends and family in this small town are outraged at this declaration. They only see Jesus as a carpenter, as the son of Mary, as one of the village children that have grown up and returned for a visit. And because of this, the familiarity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus 
proved to be a stumbling block, keeping them from believing in Jesus. And so it says, he marveled at their unbelief. Now, there are two times in the New Testament where Jesus is said to marvel or stand amazed. On one occasion, found in the books of Matthew and Luke, Jesus marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion who demonstrated absolute confidence. I love that. Absolute confidence in Jesus' ability to heal his servant. And Jesus marveled at his great faith. The only other time where it says Jesus marveled or stood amazed was here in our passage where he is amazed by the lack of faith by the people of Nazareth. Well, to be honest, I can completely understand the people of Nazareth, this reliance on human research and human experience and human reason to fully understand what is. I would say that I dabble in this on a daily basis when God's plan doesn't make sense to me, when I'm tempted to think that I know better than God does. But what is actually true is this. We can't understand life if we don't start with the existence and the plan and the character of God. There we go. Whoops, no. Oh, other way. The right. Sorry, y'all. There we go. Okay, got it. John Calvin even said, There is no knowing that doesn't begin with knowing God. We were created to be dependent on the revelation of God in order to properly understand life. I will always come up short when I rely on my horizontal view of experience, my horizontal understanding of the situation, and the best of my human reasoning to figure out what life is, what's happening in my life. See if I can do this again. There we go. Pastor Paul Tripp declares that faith in God is the portal to knowledge. It's the portal to wisdom. And so, Jesus leaves. Not because he's hamstrung by their responses or he's lost his power, but instead he just wasn't going to reward their lack of faith with miracles. But in spite of the rejection in Nazareth, The mission continued, and not only continued, but expanded. In one sense, the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth prepared the disciples for some challenges that they would face when he sent them into the mission field without him. Now, there really aren't a lot of good memes, (laughs) but I found this one. I thought, we'll go with it. I didn't draw it. (laughs) For the first time, The disciples are no longer witnesses to what Jesus is doing. They are now called to be participants in the work of the kingdom. And this is a very significant moment because this is the beginning, the beginning of God's call to all his people. And it's really amazing that he entrusted his ministry to these men. Even though they didn't possess the greatest pedigree, they didn't have a ton of ministry experience, and even though they demonstrated at times that they were confused and lacked faith, what these men did have, though, was consistent time with Jesus. And he had sent them out with his authority. James Edwards writes, 
the sending of these particular individuals and at this stage in their understanding of Jesus testifies that the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or merit of the missionary, but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. Okay, this is a huge encouragement to me, that Jesus is willing to use these men who were very inadequate in a number of ways. It's an encouragement to me that the Lord can use us, despite our inadequacies and weaknesses, to carry out his work. And it's not because we are brave or smart or knowledgeable, but because he is great and at work in us. Our confidence doesn't have to be in ourselves. It is always to be in Jesus. The second thing to notice here is that Christ calls them not only to preach the gospel, but to live it. Faith looks like something. A dependence on God. So they didn't take anything for their journey. No provisions, no money, just a staff, a tunic, and some sandals. This instruction by Jesus is based on the fact that he wanted their words to be supported by their actions. So the very faith that they would proclaim in God, they were actually living out in their everyday experience. I had a very similar experience myself to this when I was newly married and in my first year of teaching. You have to understand, let me be very clear, I was very content with my life at that point. Very content. My husband had a good job in management with Bluebell Ice Cream. I was teaching at my dream school. And then our good friends from college, who were now on staff with Campus Crusade, asked us to join their team for a one-year mission trip to live and share the gospel to college students in Russia. But when we got back in the car, I looked at Mark fully expecting him to express that this just wasn't the time in our lives to do something like this. I was wrong. He was all in. Even the part about raising support did not deter him. And what began that night was a daily wrestling with God and Mark, about how even this was a good idea. And believe it or not, it was Easter morning that God broke through my fear and spoke clearly to my heart. For some reason, I was ready for church early that morning, which never happens, and I was in turmoil because we had to give them an answer, because we had to start raising support So I did that thing that you do when you open the Bible and hope that your eyes fall on that exact verse that God has for you to give you the answer, and it happened. In the book of James, my eyes fell on a verse that I don't think I had ever seen before. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. How can I say all day long that I have faith and I trust him 
and not trust him in this? Can I really say I have faith? I have faith that that chair is going to hold me, and I can prove it by my action by sitting in it. If I say that I really do have faith that God is going to take care of me, then I ought to be able to say yes. And then I knew I had my answer. I had to say yes. And the scariest part was that I really didn't know what I was saying yes to. I didn't even know that Russia had a different alphabet. But what turned into this grand 13-month adventure was God repeatedly pushing me out of my comfort zone and causing me to put my money where my mouth was and depend on him. It was my turn to live out what I was telling the Russian students was true about God. So the sending out of the disciples is the beginning of the grand move of the kingdom. But sandwiched in between the telling of the disciples going out and coming back in is this horrible story about John the Baptist. Mark gets us into the story by talking about some of the continued confusion that still accompanied the identity of Christ. It was hard for people to embrace the message that this guy was actually the Son of God, that this was the Messiah. And Herod had his own interpretation. Now, there are four different Herods in the New Testament. The one in this account is Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, the father, is the one in the Christmas story who's trying to kill the newborn Jesus. And like his father, Antipas is very malicious in character, which we not only know from this story, but Jesus describes him as a fox in Luke 13, 32, when Jesus was told that Herod wanted to kill him. This is also the same Herod that Pilate sends Jesus to before the crucifixion. Herod's interpretation that this was John the Baptist raised from the dead is one made by a guilt-ridden, superstitious pagan man. The marrying of a living brother's wife was prohibited by Mosaic law, and John the Baptist put his life on the line when he wouldn't let it go. He warned them multiple times, fueling the rage of Herodias. Her pride and self-deception made her want to kill him for speaking what was true. Pride has a way of hardening our hearts and deafening our ears. And at the end of that evening, Herod's pride and image was more important to him than the life of another man. And on the very same platter that piles of meat would have been brought in an hour before comes the head of the righteous and innocent John the Baptist. Now the placement of this story here, smack dab between the disciples' missionary journey, is like all of Scripture, purposeful. It's not here to give us a history lesson, really, It is here to equip the disciples and us to be what God has called us to be and to do what God has called us to do. So what are some takeaways, life takeaways, from this very dark period? Well, first, this is yet another warning of the seductiveness and destructiveness of sin. 
And every time we give way to something that's outside of God's boundaries, we step into danger and destruction. And I'm afraid, like you probably are as well, that we have been worn down by a culture that no longer takes sin seriously. And so the Bible is shockingly honest again. It puts, us, it, puts it in our face again so that we remember, so that we're warned Second, it teaches us that life isn't about us, that we are not the center of the universe, that God is, that we do not have the right to write our own rules and live however we wish to live. We live in a world that is ruled by an authority, the Lord, that's put boundaries here. You do not belong to you. That's what the gospel says. We were bought with a price. And the biggest problem in life exist inside of us, not outside of us. John the Baptist was not Herodias' problem. It was the sin in her own heart that was the problem. And we are no different. We have something inside of us, apart from grace, that is destructive, that will lead to our death. And we can't do anything about it apart from the personal rescue and grace of Jesus And we need that grace as much today as we did when we first believed because I am still a danger to me and you are still a danger to you as long as sin still lives in us. Third, this passage points us to the sovereignty of God. The collision between light and darkness is not a surprise to God. It's predicted all throughout Scripture And the life of this righteous man was ordained by God. It was ordained that he would prepare the way for Christ. It was ordained that he would speak this message to Herod and his wife that was so offensive to them, but yet so necessary. God is not shocked at this moment. And we need to remember that the things in our lives that surprise us do not surprise the Lord. He knows all things. He plans all things. His dominion rules over all. We are actually the ones that get shocked because we are not sovereign. The fourth thing is the unstoppable plan of redemption. God's kingdom will not be thwarted. It's an amazing thing that in the face of this good man's death, that the kingdom is exploding at the very same moment. So the disciples return from their missionary journey and they're sharing with Jesus all that they witnessed and were able to do, preaching repentance, casting out demons, healing the sick. And so he says to them, oh, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. It is a beautiful picture. You know these guys were exhausted. This was the first time they'd ever done this. I'm sure it took them out of their comfort zone, out of the bounds of their wisdom and strength. It even says in the text that there were so many demands on them that they actually don't have time to eat. The disciples are learning that ministry is hard work, and those who serve faithfully get tired. Christ-like service requires Christ-like sacrifice of the whole person your talent, your time, your energy, your emotion. And this is also a very good reason why Jesus sent them out two by two, which came with that warning 
to expect that they will at times get rejected. They needed a rest. But when Jesus and the disciples get to the end of that boat ride, to the other side of the water, that place is not desolate. It is filled with people. When Jesus and the disciples, I'm sorry, yeah. So now to me, sorry, it would have been totally understandable for Jesus to say, no, no, no. I have been very faithful ministering to you. I have been very faithful caring for you. This is my time with my disciples. We're trying to get away. These guys need rest. I'm going to care for them. I'll be back on Monday. But this is not what Jesus does. In reality, Jesus is about to provide an even deeper, fuller rest than the physical rest the disciples thought they were going to get. Jesus has not forgotten about the disciples, but he's going to display something to the disciples that is meant to forever change their hearts and ours. So no, Jesus doesn't send the crowd away because when Jesus looks at the crowd, he doesn't see an obstacle. He doesn't see an interruption. He doesn't see a hassle. He sees an opportunity for grace. He sees a sheep without a shepherd because he is a savior of glorious compassion. Now, the disciples, on the other hand, are not too excited about this crowd. You get a hint that perhaps they see this as an irritation. He doesn't see the hassle. I'm sorry, let's see. Perhaps they are disappointed. Perhaps they're wondering, where is this rest we're supposed to get? Then the disciples see an opportunity, sort of a logical way to divest themselves of the crowd. And it's sort of like they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, we love you and we have a wonderful plan for your life at this moment. You have taught these people well. You've done your Messiah duty. It's late. They're hungry. There's nothing to eat here. Just send them away. And Jesus says this remarkable thing to his followers. You feed them. If this is what they need, you give them something to eat. Again and again, we see the disciples being called by Christ to do things that in and of themselves, they have no capacity or ability to do because they are not the Messiah. They are tools in the hands of the Messiah. But where Jesus sees people, the disciples see problems. Where Jesus feels compassion, a deep guttural sense to help, the disciples are feeling irritation. In contrast, the disciples, in contrast to Jesus, the disciples were starting to look quite selfish. And they seem to be planning their exit for the evening. In reality, they may just be compassion fatigued. Whether you are a missionary or a mom, compassion fatigue is a byproduct or a natural consequence of caring for those who are hurting. I think we are seeing this big time in our world today with COVID, not only in our medical community, but just regular families that have been affected And it's hard to feed yourself. It's hard to feed others when you yourself are starving. When needs are so great that you don't even have time to eat. 
And even though Jesus is able to push through, the disciples get to a point where they want to push away. They don't have the capacity for compassion anymore. They've reached their limit. And surveying the situation, they have become realist, measuring all that needs to be done only by what they are able to do in their own strength. But his words, you give them something to eat, is not advice. It's not a suggestion. It's actually a command. And the disciples give really reasonable sounding excuses as to why they cannot obey. Essentially, they're saying, we don't have enough, Jesus. The disciples in their fatigue only see what they don't have. They only see what they can't do. They only imagine what won't work. The fatigue possesses no vision for what is possible and only eyes to see what is impossible. And few of us believe we ever have enough, especially when we feel empty. But whatever little we do have or don't have, this story right here says that if we commit to bringing our little to Jesus, he has the power to multiply it and make it more than enough. It doesn't look like it would be enough. It doesn't work out on a chart. But if we bring it to him, he will do the rest And that's what we see here. He gives a command to the disciples, and then he helps them fill it. So when it's determined that they can only come up with five loaves and two fish, Jesus isn't at all upset about it. He tells the crowd to sit down, divides them up, looks up to heaven, blesses and breaks the loaves, and he keeps giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and in verse 42, this beautiful verse begins with, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish, The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Jesus is ministering to the physical need of the people and to the spiritual need of his disciples. Twelve disciples serve at least 5,000 people. They were hungry and tired when they got off the boat, and yet Mark boldly says that everyone ate and was satisfied. I think it's fair to say that the crowds were satisfied with the food and the disciples were satisfied in their serving. And there were 12 baskets of bread left over, one for each disciple. Not that having a basket of food at the end was their motivation for serving, but these baskets are proof that serving through dependence on Christ will always satisfy, even more than satisfy So after the feeding of the 5,000, as soon as that was all done, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and begin to go to the other side of the sea, which was a six- to eight-hour trip. When evening came, a storm blows in. The text says that Jesus sees the disciples in the distance. He sees their struggle. He sees them going against the wind. 
But this storm that the disciples find themselves in is not a surprise to Jesus. It isn't the first time he's seen his disciples in a storm, and it's not the first time he has sent them into a storm, but it is the first time he isn't with them in the storm. But they are not there because they've been foolish. They're not there because they've been arrogant or proud. They're there because they were precisely obedient to the command of Christ. He has them where he wants them. We learn from the text that the disciples did not learn from the miracle of the loaves and that their hearts were still hardened. So clearly, he wants them to become men of faith And so you see Christ doing this thing again where he will introduce the disciples to some kind of difficulty and then in that difficulty, he reveals his glory. He so wants to alter the way they think about who they are and who he is and what life is about. So the disciples find themselves in another one of these moments. And if all Jesus wanted to do in this moment was to relieve it, he wouldn't have had to walk on the water. If all he wanted to do was to get the disciples out of this chaos or this struggle, all he would have had to do was say a prayer from the shore. The wind would have ceased, the sea would have calmed, and the boys in the boat would have been happily rowing to the other side. But that's not what he does. The Lord God Almighty is walking, choosing to walk across the angry sea into the impossible headwind because he's not after the difficulty. He's after the boys in the middle of the difficulty. That's what he's after. He's after them. That's redemption. He's trying to say to them and us, don't you get it? It's never you alone in your life. It's never you alone in your difficulty. You left to your wisdom. You left to your experience. You left to your strength. Because when the Messiah has invaded your life by his grace, you are never in a storm by yourself. It is absolutely redemptively impossible. But the boys in the boat, the disciples, they're terrified and they still don't get it. But what happens next is stunningly beautiful. He doesn't scream or yell at them. He doesn't say, I've had it. You guys are never going to get it. I've revealed myself to you again and again. And it's like, you know nothing. You've learned nothing. I'm tired of you. I'm going to get new disciples. Get out of the boat. He doesn't say that because Jesus is marvelous in his grace. He's patient in his grace. He's perseverant in his grace. And he will not stop until that grace has completed its work. And Jesus says to the disciples when the wind is still blowing, the waves are still crashing, he says to his disciples, take heart, it is I Do not be afraid. He actually speaks the most important words that could have ever been spoken. 
So when we look back at this whole chapter, I think we can summarize it by saying that Jesus sees our need when no one else does. And Jesus meets our need in ways that no one else could. And sometimes Jesus exposes us to crowds and he sends us into storms, not to break us, but to build us. And ultimately to bring us closer to him that we might be satisfied. This is why Paul can write in Thessalonians, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, even storms. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'll pray. Lord, thank you so much for where you have us. And thank you so much for who you promised to be for us in it. In Jesus' name, amen.